Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books in French Studies podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Pallavi Zoshi, the host of this channel. Today, I'm in conversation with the wonderful Dr. Eliza Jane Smith, the author of Literary Slumming, Slang and Class in 19th Century France, which is published by Lexington Books in 2021. Our guest, Eliza, is an assistant professor of French and Francophone Studies at the University of San Diego. Thank you so much, Eliza, for taking the time to talk to me about your fantastic monograph. I really enjoyed reading it, and the research is just so rich and insightful, and, and to be honest, I just couldn't put it down once I started reading it. Oh my gosh, thank you. <laughs> it's such a pleasure to be here and to finally have this conversation with you. Um, I'm glad you enjoyed the book. It was a really fun project to to work on these past couple of years, and it's like sort of still, I'm still processing the fact it's out <laughs> in the world. It is such an amazing read. Thank you so much. So uh, before we really get into a discussion of the contents of your book, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey. Like, how did you get into French studies to becoming an assistant professor and how you kind of developed an interest in this topic? As a doctoral student, I'm very interested in learning about how different academics and colleagues, you know, with such varied educational backgrounds follow uh, different paths to conceive a research project that, that ultimately becomes a book and that is available for us to read. Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, and I think with the, you know, the job market landscape nowadays for grad students, it's so great to get that feedback from lots of different academics, because <laughs> uh, it does vary a lot. And uh, for me, um, well, I went to a, a public university for my undergrad, Binghamton University in um, what they call the Southern tier of New York, where I'm from. And I, the economic landscape was so different in the U.S. at that time. And, you know, my parents both came from um, s- sort of poor farming families, you know, and my mother ended up getting her bachelor's degree. She was the only one of seven siblings to do so. So there was an, an importance put onto education, but at the time my parents never really pushed me to do a specific career path. And I started off pre-med, which now I look back on like, what, <laughs> you know? Um, so I started off pre-med and realized this isn't for me. And then I thought, well, maybe I want to do law or something, but I was still sort of always taking French. And I had a really wonderful mentor at the time, Dora Polachek, 
um, at Binghamton. And she was really the person that steered me onto the path of higher education. And so my senior year, I applied to a couple programs for an MA, PhD, and I also applied to TAPIF, thinking maybe I just want to take a year to teach abroad. And I remember I wanted to stay on the East Coast. That was the big thing. And she sort of said, hey, you should look at Santa Barbara. Um, At the time, Santa Barbara had an amazing um, French department. And since that time, it's become comparative literature. But um, I remember being like, no, I don't want to go out West. Like, it's not for me. And for whatever reason, I ended up applying like a week before the deadline. And I ended up um, going to do a campus visit. And it was sort of like a no brainer at that point. So um, I I moved to California. And uh, I worked with um, Jean Schultz, who was the supervisor, the coordinator of the language department there. And she was the one that really got us thinking about second language acquisition, applied linguistics, how we learn languages. Um, and so that seed was kind of planted. And at the same time, I was working with um, Kathy Nessie doing all of the 19th century lit. I knew that's, you know, that was the literary realm I wanted to be in. Um, and so once it became time for, you know, my doctoral research, I was trying to figure out a way to marry the two together. Um, and I had tried a couple of topics before that, like I was looking into the circus and I don't know, weird, different random topics that I would sort of start off on and then say, oh, actually, I don't really want to, this isn't for me, you know. Um, But it just so happened that I was teaching English at the time in Paris, and I gave uh, a class on American slang. And I don't know, like maybe a couple days or a week later, I sort of had that aha moment of like, I wonder what was going on with slang in the 19th century. And maybe this could be the, uh, the topic that sort of marries all of these uh, different, um, domains I'm interested in. And so, yeah, I, I really wanted to do something interdisciplinary and I also really like language teaching. I like, um, sociolinguistics especially, but also, um, second language acquisition, um, that kind of thing. And my first job ended up being as coordinator at CU Boulder. And so I was there for three years and I had a great time working with the grad students. I actually missed that part <laughs> um, of my job because um, now I'm at University of San Diego where we don't have a, a grad program. But um, I guess, yeah, f- for me, it was really like trial and error and um, finding a topic that could marry all of my interests uh, combined with luck, to be honest. Um, I was really lucky to get a job right away. Um but I hope that answers your question. Well, it does. It, it, it's, it's amazing, isn't it, how your interest in American slang kind of translated into your interest and, and, and your book in, in slang in class in 19th century France. Yeah, yeah, it was super lucky because, you know, when I thought, oh, I wonder, you know, I want to kind of look into the, I mean, at the time I was like 24. So it was like, oh, I want to see what like people were doing how they were speaking, how they were representing slang speakers in the 19th century novel. And it just so happened that there was this explosion of slang at the time in literature. And so I was fully anticipating to start on this path and find a total dead end. And instead it was like Pandora's box. Like, oh my gosh, there's just so much happening with language at this time. Um, And not many people had written about it. Uh, 
So in that sense, I just, I lucked out. Um, but I'm also the kind of person where I made a vow to myself, I'm never going to work on something that I'm inherently uninterested in, you know, just for the sake of being more marketable. I wanted to find ways to be marketable, but also to really create a passion project, you know, and that would be my main piece of advice for grads, like find something you actually are motivated to, to work on and then try to see how you can make it appealing to the market, which I know now is like in such a dire condition. I'm sure everyone's like, oh yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't know. It just is a lot of trial and error. It's, it's a really messy process. Um, yeah. As you know, I'm sure. Uh, oh, oh yes. Oh, I, I follow the <laughs> similar process. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I'm sure I, I, I kind of made my uh, supervisors very nervous for a while. <laughs> oh, we have all been there. Trust me. <laughs> uh. well, thank you. Thank you so much for for your answer. It's really interesting to, to know how you came to write this book, um, which, which brings me to my next question. So when I was scrolling through the list of books available on NBN, I was kind of immediately drawn to the title of your book. Yeah. Could you tell could you tell us a bit more about how you came up with the title and and what literary slumming is? That's a great question. So, um the title came about because as I was embarking on this journey of um you know, kind of weeding through these works that included French slang, it became really apparent, especially uh, in the first half of the 19th century, that it was primarily the language of criminals, of the dangerous classes, of the dregs of society. And the ways in which these authors, um, like Eugène Sue, Vidoc, uh, Balzac even, were sort of like, oh, let me be the mediator, your guide on this um, voyage, this foray into the, you know, Uh, Parisian underworld, uh, it became clear that they were, these bourgeois consumers were engaging in a form of, of slumming of, you know, kind of transcending these, you know, social, gender, sexual, uh, class boundaries. But instead of within a geographic realm, it happened within a literary domain. And so I thought, okay, there's something, there's something analogous happening. Um, it's just within on the page, you know? So for me, it was kind of a, a no brainer, the, the title, because there was this negative connotation associated with it as well. The consumption of this literature and even the creation of this kind of literature that included, um, the slang language, these, you know, pejorative dialects. Um, so for me, literary slumming refers to this sociolinguistic concept of the like mass appropriation of criminal um, lower class culture and language by, you know, upper class bourgeois writers to, you know, appropriate remarket and, you know, the way in which they sort of frame the creation of these, you know, anti-societies or underworlds is with language. It's the foundation of it. Um, this argot, this slang. So on the one hand, it's like a degradation of The content, you know, we have like the inclusion of these new dialects, this um, criminal language, uh, like obscene 
content, you know, violence, you know, sexual intrigue, etc. And then on the other hand, it's like the manufacturing of the books themselves, this mass production in serial format in newspapers, or, you know, also the cheapening of book binding. Um, and so like as an object, like the, these books also um, lose their luxury value, you know, so for me, it was twofold. And then on top of that, we're getting these lower class characters sort of pushed to the forefront of these novels in an attempt to categorize them. But what ends up happening over time is this nuancing uh, of social categories, this total breakdown, and it's actually inadvertently creating more possibilities, um, if that makes sense. But at the crux of all this is language. That's what I argue is the basis. It's not some peripheral accessory. It's what constructs the entire uh, world that these, you know, bourgeois writers basically appropriate. Amazing. Thank you. Um, I I just wondered, you know, uh, we'll come to, I, I have a few questions about representations of these criminal types. But uh, before that, I wanted to because the book uh, talks about slang and its kind of literary representations in 19th century France, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the background or, or the advent of slang and its evolution in France uh, and, and about why you decided, you've partially answered this question, but and about why you decided to write about slang in 19th century France particularly. That's a great question. So... Um... In the prologue of this book, which is quite short, I do <laughs> sort of reference what happened before um, the 19th century. And yeah, it dates back all the way to the 15th century with François Villon's um, 11 ballads. And at the time it was an argot, it was jargon. Um, and how it, they're just so tricky to decipher, you know. And that those, those works came about from an actual criminal trial um, of the coquillard, the, um, I forget who translates it as the shellsters, but this sort of band of like, uh, you know, false pilgrims who would basically thieve and trick. And, um, they worked in this, this giant network and they wore the little shell on their collar in the same way, um, as the pilgrims of, uh, Saint-Jacques de Compostelle. So, this trial was happening and within these documents were revelations of their secret coded language. So Villon took inspiration from that, was familiar with this lexicon. And then he wrote these ballads, which are incredibly difficult to decipher. Um, so that's one of the major works, earlier works where we have representations of this like organized criminal network who speak in this coded language. And then I sort of fast forward to, the 16th century, um, Guillaume Boucher's uh, Les Serres, I think it's it's the 15e Serre, the 15th uh, evening, where he uh, includes sort of this, you know, um, mix of criminal jargon. Um, there's also Pechant de Ruby's uh, uh, The Generous Life, the La Vie Généreuse, where he details how he leaves home at the age of eight, uh, and he joins three different criminal bands and part of their, his initiation into these organized networks is uh, acquiring the language, the secret language. Um, so even though that's sort of like in the realm of the farcical and 
you know, it's sort of this uh, picaresque um, tale, basically. Uh, we see throughout the centuries these these works that represent criminals. Here, here is their coded language, and unlike later works in the 19th century, they're all sort of wandering around the French countryside. There's no centralized point for them yet. Um, and yeah, there's some plays and things throughout, you know, the, se- the 17th and 18th century, but it wasn't until the 19th century with the innovations with printing primarily and the changes in the newspaper industry where it just explodes basically, you know, um, which worked out for me because I love the 19th century. Um, so it, yeah, it just happened to be that way, but there are some like, you know, works that, um, Oh, Olivier shows, um, uh, dictionary from the 16th century. I mean, writers in the 19th century were referencing those works that had been co- compiled earlier, you know, so that those were kind of the foundational texts in a way. Um, and then it, it morphed and evolved over the course of the, the 19th century. Perfect. Now I'm going to deflect a little bit from 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 the content of your book. Um, I wonder how you how the archival process uh, went about. You know, when you were collecting data for the for the book, what kind of creative strategies you used? And I, I'm sure you traveled a lot. Yeah. No, this is a great question. It's sort of like the dissertation, like, you know, there's no man, no one says, oh, here's how you do archival work. Um, I was really lucky in that my last two years at Santa Barbara, I got a grad fellowship. And so I was like, well, I'm going to go to France. Like, um, I worked with, yeah, that got set up. I I wanted to go to Paris and, um, you know, Kathy Nessie at the time, she, uh, set it up so that I was working with um, the late Dominique Khalifa, um, who was sort of a mentor, a point person there. But mainly it was nowadays with Gallica and things like that, it was a lot of keyword searching and, you know, sort of one text would take me here to, to, you know, it's like that map with the different, you know, strings, you're sort of going from this point to this point. Um, And... I think consistency is a lot of it. Like I wouldn't go to the BNF or um, there were other archives I would go to every day, but just going like a couple days a week and, and keeping track of, you know, it, it's unfortunately a lot of time <laughs> just sift, sifting through materials and seeing, is there anything here that I can use? And I know a lot of um, grad students don't have the luxury of having like two years of fellowship, I would encourage everyone to apply for fellowship money (laughs) near the end of their PhD. Um, But yeah, a lot of it is just um, keyword searching and, and figuring out like where I need to go to, but as anyone who's ever done archive work in France knows, it takes a lot of time just to even get set up in the archives, you know? I mean, the BNF, it would, it takes you an hour just to like get there, go through security, put everything in the clear brief. And then you go down those Orwellian elevators to the basement. And, and then sometimes they don't have your document or there's a flood and you're like, Oh my gosh. So there's a whole like experience that goes with archival work. Um, but it is, it's just, it's just a frustrating slow process, you know? Um, unfortunately, but you know, I do feel grateful that a lot of this stuff is becoming digitized. Um, and it was easier getting access to books that it would have taken like weeks to have them shipped to 
Santa Barbara or like not even, you know, have access to them at all. So um, it's a messy process, I would say. All right. Thank you so much. So, so uh, coming back to the content of the book. Um, so uh, we talked about the advent of slang. And uh, you gave us a bit of background about, uh, you know, slang in, in uh, 16th century France, 17th, and, and finally about 19th century France. Um, so now I wonder uh, if you could tell us a little bit about um, the, the relation um, of slang to representations of criminal types, uh, who I guess mostly belong to the literate lower classes, and uh, if there were changes in these representations, both synchronically as in, as, in ver- as in variations across representations of different criminal types, and diachronically, meaning um, did they evolve, did these uh, representations evolve along the years, and, and how? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would say initially uh, with, okay, we'll start with Vidoc's memoirs, because that was sort of the the... The, the book that really made this whole thing a trend. For me, initially, Vidoc, Eugène Sue, Balzac's uh, Splendeur et Misère des Courtisanes, all of those, it's, it's pretty homogenous, more or less. But by the time we get to Balzac, it's, there's different nuances being added. We can kind of see a glimpse of what's to come um, post-1850. But it's interesting... Um, the slang speaker, you know, it's the hardcore criminals, it's the prostitutes, the thieves, the murderers, right? And even it's interesting what's going on with with gender because some of the women criminals almost resemble men, like in how they're depicted and how they're described physically, the way they speak. And then we have others like uh, Fleur from Mis- The Mysteries of Paris, who's this sort of virginal um, you know, prostitute with a heart of gold. And it's said that she speaks slang because she, you know, runs with these people, but she really doesn't in the novel. I mean, there's like two instances where she actually says uh, slang words or expressions. Um, so I would say in the beginning, it was pretty homogenous. Um, and I think that was done intentionally to sort of kind of hold on to this like 18th century typology, this, you know, social typology. But by the time we get to Balzac, what starts to happen is this element of sexuality with Vautrin uh, engaging in male-male sex, um, you know, and his lover and et cetera, um, who's also Theodore Calvi, who's also, you know, a hardened criminal. And so we have like weird things happening with sexuality. So that's like another nuance that gets added to this, you know. Um, so we see it kind of breaking down by the, by the um, you know, mid 19th century. And then over time, it does really change. Um, we have Les Miserables, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, that completely alters it. He's, he presents it as this language of misery and, you know, um, sort of similar to the last day of a condemned man, there's this socialist call for the, you know, upper classes to take pity on them, to look at the situation with different eyes of like, oh my gosh, these people are committing crime because they're victims of misery. And the characters are much more nuanced. You know, there's not this like black and white morality that's attached to the way that they speak. That's one element of it. The second element is that they are free to move about the city. They're not confined to these, you know, uh, 
dark, you know, underworldly um, geographic spaces or on the very periphery of the city, they're kind of everywhere, you know, so we see it becoming more democratic in that sense. And then with Hugo, who really refused to engage in um, these low, low standards of, of writing and publishing, he wanted to elevate it to um, something more poetic, to something more in the realm of the sublime. And his whole challenge was, this is the test of the writer. If I can turn this language, this grotesque language into something poetic and, and beautiful and associate it with antiquity and uh, images from the Bible and from Christianity, then, you know, that's just, that speaks to my genius, essentially. Um, so it's less of this, you know, let's take a, a trip into <laughs> the forbidden, you know, criminal underrealm and I will be your guide. And, you know, it's, it's less of this voyeuristic experience and more of, you know, uh, this, this poetic, um, one. And then, yeah, then we have this explosion of slang dictionaries after that. And those evolve as well. You know, they start off kind of like, you know, the early 19th century works where they're here, I'm revealing the, the language of the criminal. And then they over time become more democratized, more nuanced. And it's like, oh, well now it's kind of the language of the working classes too. And that was in part, you know, thanks to Hugo and his work sort of, you know, mixing the two together. Um, and then it's sort of like the way that hip Parisians speak by the end of the 19th century. And there's all these elements of gesture that go with it and perform it. How are you performing the language? You just can't simply learn slang and speak it. You need to know how to do the right gestures or say it with the right intonation, etc. Um, and then, yeah, the last chapter of the book, I look at women slang speakers, which changes so drastically you know, you have these like femme fatale types or, you know, these highly sexualized uh, women characters who speak like working class men and totally disrupt, you know, that fantasy of women who seduce and they become, you know, these women exempt from seduction almost, you know, but they're, they're not like the earlier uh, portrayals of these ogre type, you know, highly masculine women. So it was interesting to see the nuances and, you know, the ideologies infused within the language and how it totally breaks down by the end of the 19th. There's like, there's just no clear cut categories anymore, you know? Amazing. Um, so I, I just wondered, you know, because you mentioned social class, mm -hmm. um, um, my, my next question is, is kind of about the relationship between the authors, um, the readers, and those represented in the works. I mean, I, I wonder how these re relationships worked and, and how shifts in kind of authorial positions with regards to their literary subjects kind of changed their representations in this in this particular genre, if I may, uh, of uh, 19th century literature. Yeah, so it was really interesting, um, especially in the beginning, you know, with Eugène Sue, for example, in The Mysteries of Paris, it was so insanely popular that, you know, even if you weren't literate, you were hearing people talk about it and discuss about it. And even if you couldn't afford uh, an, a newspaper subscription, I mean, people would just like pass you the newspaper leftover and you could engage in that way. And um, Sue really catered his novel to his particular public because he would receive letters and um, you know, from 
you know, the working classes, you know, who, and so in that sense, Sue kind of shifted his novel accordingly, you know? Um, so it did have a very strong socialist slant to it, um, partly because of these, these letters and things. Um, but I think as a means to make money primarily, uh, maybe not Victor Hugo so much because he was more committed to, you know, this uh, artistic elitism. Um, they really, you know, there was so much pulp and, and things. I mean, I guess it's sort of analogous to what like Netflix and these things are doing. It's like, oh, you know, we're going to like get the most uh, um, tantalizing subject matters and leave these cliffhangers and have these like very... Um, so socially immoral characters, et cetera, to try and get audience ratings up, you know, to just try and get subscriptions to try and gain fame and clout and, and, and all of these things. So um, I would say primarily, I do have a chapter on this, like really looking at who was consuming these works. Um, and while the working classes were aware, it was mostly bourgeois consumers, you know, at the, at the beginning until by the end of the 19th century, you have increase in literature literacy rates and things like that. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> I'm not trying to think if I missed, oh, no, I missed a part does. of your question. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no, that, that, that's fine. You know, I, I was wondering about, uh, you know, representations. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, would you say these representations of these particular characters were more rea realist or kind of more fictive? Because, you know, because the author didn't belong to the class yeah. he was writing about. Um, could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one that I really didn't, wasn't super interested in because I knew there was really no way for me personally to like prove that, you know what I mean? Like I knew it, it's unfortunately a reality um, of the world we live in that this kind of like appropriation of cultures happen. And it's, you know, nowadays with social media, people can perhaps call it out more, but um, I wasn't interested in uh, determining if the slang that these authors were representing was indeed accurate. And I wasn't really interested in determining if their representations were accurate. I was just, because in my mind, I think, no, I mean, how could that be? You know, like, I mean, they're so, especially in the beginning, they just seem so caricatured and um, pejorative. And then you have, you know, um, the whole like physical aspect of, you know, uh, like phrenology and things like that, like, oh, we can determine their criminal by how they look. And, and, you know, there is like a racial component to that as well that I mentioned in the book. And so, um, yeah, I think what it's a very depressing subject matter. So it was depressing to look at and see like, okay, they're basically like marketing this to make money and gain fame and things. Um, but what ends up happening is because, because of this, um, this visibility we see over the course of the century, these typically underrepresented classes or people, they start to sort of gain literacy for themselves and then write themselves, write their own voice and say, no, actually, that's not how it happened. Or, you know, this is actually my story and I'm um, not a witness to this, but I'm actually uh, a member of this group or class or what have you. And so, um, yeah, I mean, especially in the beginning, the representations are just, they're, they're caricatures in my mind, you know, they just seem so ridiculous. Um, 
And then even, you know, with like Emile Zola and the Goncourt brothers, their representations of women, I mean, it is extremely depressing and pejorative. It's, it's, um, it's very much a, um, and you know, in the book, I, it's all, it's all male writers. Um, So we're having a very specific perspective um, in my mind, I would want to say it's not <laughs> accurate. It's hard to say though, you know, like it, it's, um, it's hard to determine, um, because they didn't necessarily have the, the means to self represent. Um, but yeah, I would say, you know, there is a, um, a push towards the mid to the late 19th century to give more quote unquote accurate representations. Um, but I, I don't know. There's there's a a lens there that is that of the you know the white male bourgeois writer. So I w- I would definitely yeah not um, trust it. You know. This is this is really really interesting because I was. Uh... Just wondering about you know this relationship between uh, dominant and oppressed cultures, mm-hmm. and would you say that you know um, the kind of proliferation of this kind of uh, genre in the nineteenth century mm-hmm. kind of um, established the social hierarchy, or maybe blurred the lines between the upper and the lower classes? For me, I I would say there's a definite blur. Well, maybe both, right? So maybe initially. There is this establishment, you know, in earlier works, Vidoc, Eugène Sue, like these are the criminal classes. These are the, you know, heroic aristocratic members of society. You know, here's our bourgeoisie, um, you know, peppered in and, you know, maybe they're immoral, maybe they're moral. It's kind of gray sometimes. Um, but the language, you know, the use of language to, I, to mark a member of a specific social class that became very um, clear cut. Okay. You speak slang, then you're a hardcore criminal or you speak slang, you're a prostitute, you know um, you're not any of these other things. And over time it becomes so blurred. It's like, well, are you working class? Are you uh, a criminal? Are you kind of both like, you know, it's, um, or are you uh, a bourgeois man who speaks slang? Cause <laughs> you want to be cool and hip, you know? So it's like, uh, it totally breaks down um, by the end. So I think it kind of does both weirdly. Like um, initially it becomes this way of signaling like who's who in society, but over time it just becomes totally, they all become enmeshed with one another. And it's like, um, as I explained, the the ideological web is just so vast that it could mean this or it could mean this. It could signal that or that. Um so yeah, I would say there's a definite definite blurring. Yeah, that that is very interesting because you know I was just thinking that uh, in the first parts of your book you kind of uh, mentioned that these criminal archetypes mm-hmm. kind of belong to the lower classes, and then how this kind of category uh, came to include the working class and then Parisians as well. Yeah. That was really interesting. Yeah. That was really interesting to see. It's kind of, um, yeah, it has this democratizing effect, you know, where um, all of a sudden it's like, well, it, it just undergoes this process of becoming more mainstream. Um, and granted, these writers are catering to a middle class audience, a bourgeois audience. So 
there's that to consider, but over time it, it sort of gets watered down, you know, and more integrated and into, um, society. It has less of that taboo factor. Um, whereas initially it's like, oh my gosh, slang, <laughs> how could they have you know, these debates about why is it, you know, this is so vulgar and hideous. They, they can't possibly include this in French literature, you know? Amazing. That's very interesting. Uh, just one last question about the sure. content of the book. So uh, this one is about your last chapter, mm-hmm. so about women mm-hmm. and slang. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. So um, as I mentioned, you know, at the beginning with, the, you know, the Mysteries of Paris and in Vidoc's memoir, memoir and um, Balzac's um, Splendors and, and Miseries of Courtesans, the women the hardcore women criminal speakers uh, of slang are, they resemble men, you know, they're sort of like large in physique. They have these like square jaw lines. Like in some of the images I include, it looks like they have like a five o'clock shadow. I mean, it it looks like a a man in drag. And by the time we get to, uh, you know, post 1850, I look at the Goncourt brothers, um, Germany La Sorteux, and then also Zola's Nana, um, as representations of two highly sexualized women slang speakers. And so we see how it's like, you know, this femme fatale, maybe not so much in Germany's uh, case, but she is, um, you know, she is engages in prostitution. She's working class as well, like Nana. Um, and, you know, she is basically a sexual object, but there are these moments in the novel where they can totally disrupt that male fantasy by using a working class slang. And they also at the same time acquire agency in those moments um, where they're able to say no, or I want this, or, um, you know, set limits with these men uh, where they can't, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a terrible ending for both of them. And like I said, overall, it's, it's a very depressing um, image of these women, but it's interesting how language, almost in the in the same way, and I reference um, Jessica Hope Jordan's book on um, like the women siren in the 1930s. You know, like Mae West. You know, it's sort of this this way of women using language or slang to sort of um, uh, you know um, kind of put themselves in the driver's seat and to and to um, uh, stop men from you know objective you know kind of like re writing the narrative, you know, where it's like, oh no, like I'm in the driver's seat here. And, uh, I'm not just your, like, I'm not like this little virginal play thing, like Fleur and Esther and in Balzac's novel were. And I'm also not this like hardened ogre like figure. Um, I can be all of these different things. And with Nana, it's interesting because her social trajectory is so all over the board, you know? So that's another complication to this. Um, but yeah, that one really focuses on language, but also the body um, and at the same time agency and the ways in which agency is um, uh, occurs through the body, through gesture, things like that. And at the same time um, with language, with this like working class male, typically uh, male slang. Thank you so much for for uh, your answer. You know, I mean, I was just 
very <laughs> impressed, to be honest, you know, because of the, the, the variety of topics or subtopics that you've covered in this book. It's just really a very, very fun read. And um, before before we close um, uh, this episode, I just have a, two questions about this project. Sure. Um, so, so the first one, um, which makes some academics a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's okay. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's just that I wanted to know that if you had a chance to to redo the project. Uh, what is the one thing that you would uh, do differently? That I would do differently? Gosh, that's a great question. I'm not sure because already I was sort of debating, like I have uh, chapter two and chapter six kind of look more at the body. Um, and the book, to be honest, was longer than I wanted it to be. I wanted something, a clean, like 150 page book. Um, but I don't know if I would remove those chapters. I'm not sure. Like, I guess I'll have to wait for the reviews (laughs) and see, but maybe that would be the thing. I would make it um, shorter. And I guess it's also dear to my heart because it was my doctoral research, you know, like if I was going to publish it, I was happy with, with the result, you know, like no one can publish a perfect book. And um, there's always things looking back that you're like, Oh, maybe I should have done this differently. But I think overall I'm very, I'm very pleased with it, you know, but maybe shorten it. That might have been maybe take out those two chapters. Sometimes I think perhaps (laughs) that would be the change. Perfect. Uh, And this is a perfect segue into my last question. Mm -hmm. Um, What are you currently working on? Oh, that's a great question, too. Right now, I'm kind of moving into um, looking at I'm just finishing an article on uh, Balzac and um, the representations of organized crime and um, Argo still still working on slang, but I'm looking more at like theories of language economics. Um, so that's, I don't know, something I'm working on now. And then I also want to revisit, I feel like I have unfinished business with um, uh, Pechon de Ruby, that 16th century text. There's some things in there, even though I work on 19th, I kind of want to do some uh, look at that a little closer because I feel like uh, there's some things with language I I can still explore there. And then honestly, like I really enjoy writing articles. So I'm kind of looking for after the book, you're just like, Oh, I cannot wait to write an article. So um, just exploring different topics that, you know, I might be interested in. And um, I'd love to do something with women. You know, like I said, I, I worked on all male authors that by the time I was like finished with this, I was like, ugh, this is just, I need to do a project uh, that focuses on women. Um, but I'm not sure what that is yet. So to be to be seen, I guess. Right. Thank you so much for kind of giving us a sneak peek oh, <laughs> into, yeah. your, into your projects. Of course. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess that's it. Um, thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk to me about your your fantastic book and, and and it's been such a great pleasure to read it it's it's been wonderful talking to you today and uh i hope we see you again on nbn thank you so much thank you for just i don't know the compliments and for taking the time to read it and for this wonderful interview i it's been it's been great so thank you thank you so much see you bye